It felt like somebody took a sledgehammer and was beating my body. A grim new milestone, even as planning forges ahead to restart and reopen. I think the prudent way to do it is to be very methodical about this. The virtual lines of jobless in limbo waiting for backlog relief. I just assumed the government would be there for me. We need the National Guard. We need them to come and test our patients and our staff. Testing of caretakers of the community. Is it accurate? Is it enough? Windows up, please, please roll up your windows. Food lines get longer and more desperate. We want to make sure that everyone's safe and we want to make sure that they have food so that they can survive right now. Federal help for small businesses and hospitals. This is the adrenaline shot that the healthcare system needs. As South Florida works at top speed to stop the spread. Good morning. Glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putney. I'm Glenna Milberg. We begin today with the focus on phasing in a reopening. Six weeks now of isolation from family and friends and the normal daily routine is taking a toll. Especially hard for those with loved ones in the hospital barred from visitors and devastating for those dealing with profound loss. But Governor Ron DeSantis says Florida has flattened the curve. Fewer cases of COVID-19 are being reported almost every day. The death toll is starting to fall. Hospitalizations are down. That is all positive signs. Still, the governor says he is not in any rush to reopen Florida. Parker Branton is at Hard Rock Stadium this morning with more on the governor's plan to reopen the state. Parker, good morning. Michael, good morning. Another day of testing here at Hard Rock Stadium. Meantime, Governor Ron DeSantis is hard at work coming up with a plan to reopen that, reopen the state. Part of that plan includes an online submission portal for Floridians to post any type of questions, comments, or concerns they have with the reopening process. The governor saying that he wants to do this the right way and the safe way. A caravan of cars gathering near Freedom Tower Saturday afternoon calling for state and local leaders to reopen Florida. The rally coming hours after the governor met with health care workers at the Cleveland Clinic in Weston. I think you haven't seen the type of, of backlash here that you've seen in some of these other states. And what we've tried to do is to reduce the type of contacts that would lead to the transmission of the virus. Florida's reopening task force working throughout the weekend as they determine how to begin reopening the state, stop economic hemorrhaging, and all while considering potential health risk. But before a final report is submitted, the governor wants to hear from you. His task force launching the public submission portal where residents can post their comments and concerns. I think the prudent way to do it is to be very methodical about this, be very data driven. I'm not in a rush, um, you know, to, 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 to do anything. I would rather do it right. And the governor saying that he does not feel comfortable for things like in-person sporting events. Those will not happen in the month of May, he says. He says that opening open spaces like beaches and parks still are expected to be the first to open here in South Florida. The governor expected to speak in a few hours in Orlando where we could get a better idea of his reopening plans. Now, if you want to take a look at that online submission portal where you yourself can put any comments, questions, or concerns, we've got that for you at local10.com. Glenn and Michael, back to you. Parker, thank you so much. Well, South Florida's only Republican member of Congress is Mario Diaz-Balart of Miami, 
On Friday, he won another term in Congress when no other candidate signed up to run against him in the 25th Congressional District. More immediately, the congressman is back at work, now recovered from COVID-19, having been the first House member to test positive last month. Congressman Diaz-Balart is with us via Skype from Miami, looking pretty good. Congressman, <laughs> first and foremost, how are you feeling? How's your family, your staff? How's that going? Look, we're feeling well. I, my health is back. I'm back to, I would tell you, 100%. Uh, my family is healthy. My staff, my team, uh, who has been working nonstop, they're also doing doing uh, really well. We think one of them um, had it but never got tested uh, for it. Uh, but everybody else uh, was, uh, you know, was able to, to not get sick this, despite me having uh, the virus a little while ago. Yeah. Congressman, we know that you self-isolated in Washington, didn't come home because your wife had a pre-existing medical condition. We trust that she is all right, your son, everybody, and the family is good. Thank you, my, my, thank you so much, Michael. Everybody here is healthy. Uh, we're doing well and uh, uh, being very, very, very careful um, and obviously taking this very seriously. And that's, you know, my message is always, please take this very seriously. Listen to the local, state, and federal authorities uh, who uh, their advice, because this is a really, really nasty virus. And again, I'm very fortunate, uh, but I can tell you, it's really nasty. Yeah. Congressman, uh, you and your fellow members of Congress this week overwhelmingly passed this $484 billion relief bill, the latest in a series of these bills. Um, and the president signed it, so that's all to the good. But this this bill, which is going to help uh, struggling businesses, it's going to help testing and hospitals, which are struggling, but there is no money for state and local governments. As you well know, uh, Miami-Dade County, Broward, uh, Collier, your district, among others, you know, have are spending millions of dollars. When is the federal government going to give state and local governments some financial help? You know, we, we talk about, it's a very good question, Michael, we talk about the federal government as if it, it was this weird entity that had an unlimited amount of money. This is the people of the United States. And, and actually, it's not even the people of the United States. It's our children and our grandchildren that we're borrowing money from to deal with this emergency, as we had to do. But I think we have to be very careful. Uh, I keep hearing requests for more and more and more money, more money from our children and our grandchildren who are have to, gonna have to pay the interest rates. Uh, this is gonna hurt our midterm and long-term economic uh, outcome. So we just can't continue to write checks as if this was fake money. I think obviously there's been a lot of money sent to the states already, as you all know, in, in the previous bill. And, uh, the fact that the governments, that the local governments have the ability to craft budgets to uh, increase or decrease taxes and spending uh, makes them no different in many senses than the federal government. So the concept of just more money, more money, more money, when, by the way, most of the money has yet to be spent, is something that I'm very concerned about. I've, I've, I think this is an emergency like a war, which is why I've been willing to do whatever it takes. But... I don't want to just pretend like there's an, an amazing amount of, you know, infinite amount of money that the federal government has because we don't. We're borrowing the money to do this emergency as we need to. Uh, and so we have to be very careful about just asking for more and more and more money. We have to have the money that we need, but as little uh, as, as possible borrowing it from our children and our grandchildren's future, which is what I fear we've been doing. Un unprecedented, no doubt. Congressman, part yes. of the package that was passed this week is for testing. 
nationwide and in the states. That, I think, is going to be a headline for us today going forward in the week because testing is what everybody says needs to be done in an accurate way to figure out how reopening can be managed so we know where COVID-19 is spreading and where it's not. To your point earlier, you said even a staff member had not been tested. Talk, if you would, about what you see as the amount and the breadth and the depth of testing that this country needs in order to be on sure footing for reopening planning. Yeah, you know, the science, unfortunately, keeps uh, evolving. And uh, I wish we'd have, we would have gotten the information accurately and quickly from the Chinese regime. It doesn't surprise me that we didn't. Um, and also that they hoarded a lot of the equipment needed to not only protect people, but even potentially testing. So, um, but the American uh, enterprise, the private sector, along with the U.S. government, I think has done a great job in ramping up testing. We're going to have to do a lot more of it. Uh, I like what the governor has been saying, Governor DeSantis, which is we have to do this rationally and safely. Um, uh, obviously, we can't stay closed forever because otherwise the United States is going to become the third world country. We're going to go back to the Stone Ages, which we can't allow us, ourselves to do. But testing is a big part of that equation. And obviously, every day we're learning more about this uh, vile virus uh, that is allowing us to hopefully have a better idea as to how and when and where even uh, to reopen. So yeah. do you see testing as a follow-up? Do you see uh, Governor DeSantis, I think his wish list, uh, if I hear him correctly, would be to, to test every single person. There is just not the resource for that. Can you quantify what you think is an appropriate amount of testing? One in 10 Americans, 0.01%. Uh, what, what would give us the accurate picture that we need? It's a really good question, and I don't think there is an answer to that specifically. Obviously, um, folks, uh, if, if we're to start reopening uh, the economy, those that are going to start coming back to work, I think those folks are, have to be the first people that are tested. And so clearly, we're going to have to test a lot more people that have been tested. You know that the United States has tested per capita more than the rest of more people per capita than the rest of the world combined. Having said so, uh, that is an area that we're still need. We need a lot of uh, more tests to take place before we know that we're reopening in a safe way. Yeah, Congressman, as you are well aware, every afternoon the president and his coronavirus task force hold a televised briefing. This week, uh, the president was sort of um, meditating on the possibility, of suggesting perhaps asking Dr. Burks. Uh, uh, her her opinion about ingesting disinfectants like Clorox or Lysol uh, to fight COVID-19. The backlash was immediate and really severe, criticizing him. What did you think when you heard him say that? I saw that, and I didn't take it that way. I thought he was kind of, again, I thought he was rambling on a bit about uh, just different things and hoping that different things could work and what should be looked at, et cetera. He clearly didn't give an order to do that or say that that was the right thing to do. I wouldn't have said what he said. Um, but I think people have to be judged by their actions. And if you the actions of this administration early on, shutting off all travel uh, from China, by the way, criticized, criticized for doing that by most people of, uh, of the Democratic Party. Um, and then again, having a very aggressive uh, stance, creating this group headed by, I think in a great way, by the vice president. Uh, again, uh, you know, we, we were way behind because of unfortunately the 
communist uh, Chinese regime. But I think if you look at actions, and that's what I focus on, you all know that about me. I don't get yeah. tied in and, you know, I don't get bogged down by tweets or words. I actually look at actions. I think the actions speak for themselves. Yeah. Congressman Mario diaz Ballard, always great to see you. Glad that you are well. Stay that way, and we will talk to you soon. Thanks okay. for your time. And up Stay next, healthy. another South Florida member of Congress with a different point of view. We will be speaking with Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz after the break. latest round of federal relief passed late this week. We talked about that almost half a trillion dollars worth, intending to be a lifeline for small businesses, funding for more testing, and help for hospitals dealing with crushing expenses and loss of revenue. That bill was pushed hard by Democrats in Congress, who nearly doubled the amount of money that was initially proposed by Republican leaders. And one of the Democrats is Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. She joins us live now by Skype. Congresswoman, good morning. Great to see you. Good morning. Great to see you both, too. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the bill that you voted for. Uh, it's meant to be helping small business. We know the previous bill, a lot of that was gobbled up by publicly traded big corporations like one. It's not in your district, but uh, AutoNation in Fort Lauderdale got $77 million. They did it legitimately, nothing illegal, but uh, and they're going to give the money back. But that's not what this money is really for, is it? And you've seen a number of large corporations like that, Ruth's Chris, Shake Shack, you know, a number of other large publicly traded corporations that kind of got their hand caught in the cookie jar. Like you said, they uh, they didn't break any laws or rules. But this, this funding was meant for and should be allocated to truly small businesses. And that, that's why we, we fought to make sure that $60 billion of the additional $310 billion that was added to the Paycheck Protection Program is going to be lent by small community banker, ba banking institutions, credit unions, community development financial institutions that lend to minority-owned businesses, women-owned businesses, because you have uh, uh, the definition, Michael, was that a small business in this law, the CARES Act, was defined as 500 employees or less. People are facing financial ruin. There are businesses that are at risk of not opening ever again. And there are employees of those businesses that this funding is designed to make sure that can remain on the payroll. That's critical. And large corporations certainly shouldn't be in line or cutting the line, which is what was happening. So, Congresswoman, one of the that that is a lesson learned from the first time the, the money ran out from the first round of those loans in 13 days. Uh, some of the banks have been saying they started that without rules, that the banks were actually making up the rules as they went along. <laughs> what what well, else did you learn for this second round as far as oversight and, and rulemaking? What's different this time? Well, that's the critical thing is that we, we need oversight over how these funds are spent. Uh, unfortunately, Republicans in this interim legislation wouldn't agree to change any of the rules, Glenda. So <laughs> it is still the case that banks are without being authorized in the statute, requiring a prior lending relationship. They're requiring them, uh, customers to have a line of credit with them. These are the larger banks. Or to have some significant customer relationship with them. And granted, they have to review the, uh, the, the, for the Patriot Act and security issues, the, the, the trustworthiness of the, of, the, of the person they're lending, the business they're lending to. But at the end of the day, that time can be taken 
without requiring that someone have a prior customer relationship. Basically, they took their biggest customers and they let them cut the line. And that, that has to be changed in the next piece of legislation. The only thing we were able to get agreement to was to allocate $60 billion of the 310 to small lenders who lend to truly small businesses. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's got to that's gotta change for sure, because we're at risk now of much of the same thing happening, even with this $310 billion, because the Republicans wouldn't agree to that change. Yeah. Representative Wasserman Schultz, as you are acutely aware, thousands, thousands of your constituents have lost their jobs, also lost their health insurance. They can't make their car payments, their rent payments, and they have applied for unemployment benefits insurance uh, yes. to the state of Florida. And you have been very critical, you and other Democrats and other, you know, many other people critical of the mess that is the State Department of Economic Opportunity. The governor has really applied a lot of uh, pressure there, tried to bolster that system, but you're not happy with it. No, not not remotely. Um, you know, then Governor Rick Scott broke the unemployment compensation system on purpose so that we could he could keep his unemployment numbers low. And Rick, and Rick DeSantis, uh, Ron DeSantis had two years to do something to fix it, along with his Republican colleagues in the legislature, and they did nothing. So you have you know nearly a million people who have applied for unemployment in this in this state. They shut the system down because it's so broken they couldn't handle any more applicants, and they're trying to fix it. They uh, you know he finally did say. They're going to make the payments retroactive to when people uh, became unemployed because the system is so broken. But they've got to make sure that the governor can take specific action, like increasing the benefits, like making sure that, uh, that, that people have more than 12 weeks of benefits. He has broad emergency power he's refusing to use. And he should call the legislature into special session if he thinks he doesn't have those benefits. But Governor yeah. Charlie Crist used them. And Ron DeSantis, I call him Ron Disaster, has, uh, has refused to use those powers. Right. Uh, just to follow up on that, uh, Florida is among the states that pays the least amount to people who are unemployed, $275 right. a week. Uh, right. You believe that with an executive order, the governor could both increase the amount and increase beyond 12 weeks, which is also a, a, a short period. He could do that on his own just for purposes of the pandemic. He has broad, expansive emergency powers and he's refusing to use them. And again, if he thinks that he doesn't have those powers, then he should call the legislature into special session or use the budget commission that meets in between sessions to be able to help him expand that authority. We, we need the safety net for the people who have become unemployed through no fault of their own due to this pandemic. You know, the, the system that you were just talking about, since, uh, since we spoke right here a couple of weeks ago, the governor has added a lot of resource and a lot of man and woman power to the department of uh, the specific process that doles out the, takes in the applications and doles out the unemployment. Uh, to your point, still a very small percentage, relatively speaking, for those hurting. But the office did take major steps to rectify. Was that not enough for you? What, what didn't that office do that you might still? It's not the office. It's the governor himself. I mean, he has the ability to make aggressive efforts to address the problems with people getting onto the website. That they need more resources. They they have had to move personnel to support the website, and it's still not help getting enough people granted access to actually register. They they've registered something like twenty percent of applicants and uh, and gotten them benefits that. I mean, 80% uh, have not had uh, had access to it, and 
he has to use those emergency powers broadly, expansively, to be able to make sure the system can be accessed. They, they, the, the, they had to print, they had to create a paper application in order to get people assistance, and they weren't even able to actually get access to that easily from the website. So I hope the changes they're making over the weekend are dramatic, and you know, tomorrow when they reopen, that, uh, that this works a lot better. I'm doubtful. Congressman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, always good to speak with you. I hope you Thank and your you. family stay well and healthy. Thank you so much to everyone as well. Thanks. Thank you. And still to come, we head to the beach where Miami Beach Mayor Dan Gelber is managing expectations. <laughs> Studies show children with dedicated college savings are two and a half times more likely to graduate from college. Florida Prepaid has a 529 college plan for every budget and saving style. Prepaid plan open enrollment ends April 30th. Enroll today because starting is believing. We are here and ready to help. Your safety is our number one priority. That's why we are following all CDC safety guidelines. Paint jobs on sale starting at $399.95 to $799.95. We do body repair and minor collision repair. Bumpers starting at $249.95. We are located in Hialeah, Miami, and Fort Lauderdale. Your safety is our number one priority. My part-time service in the Army National Guard makes it possible for me to be more for the community I call home. I'm a better neighbor because my service has taught me how important it is to be a team player. My training helps me in my classes when I must give attention to detail to the task at hand. My service in the Army National Guard allows me to keep my community and those I care about safe from threats. Learn more about how you too can live and serve part-time close to home by visiting nationalguard.com. We're open at Volkswagen. Right now, lease payments start at $149 a month or choose 0% APR financing for six years and no payments for six months on new Volkswagen models like the Jetta, Tiguan, Atlas, and newly redesigned Passat. And with a Volkswagen community-driven promise, if you lose your job, Volkswagen will waive six of your payments and just announced 0% financing for 60 months available on VW certified pre-owned vehicles. Shop VWFlorida.com. Some people say there are many Floridas, but in this moment, we are one. We might not share the same concerns, responsibility, joy, or fear, but we all share the same hope to stay healthy and get through this together. For 75 years, Florida Blues remained committed to the one place we call home. Let's build a fort. No, let's take the fort money and invest it responsibly in a Florida prepaid college plan for our future. Time to add a Florida 529 prepaid plan to your saving strategy. Open enrollment ends April 30th. Welcome back. We are glad you are with us on this Sunday. The question on your mind, everyone's mind these days, is when can we get back to something resembling normal? Ah, normal has a different standard in South Florida tourist centers where a big influx of visitors may pose a health hazard, yet their absence wipes out the financial underpinnings of those communities. Syra Anwar is live on Miami Beach, case in point where apparently we won't be seeing access to beaches anytime soon. Hi, Syrah. 
That's right. Hey, Glenna, well, there are a lot of people near the beach. No one's actually on the beach. And with so much talk about reopening Jacksonville Beach, Miami Beach's mayor made a point to emphasize that this is not Jacksonville. On Saturday, Mayor Dan Gelber said Miami Beach is not a city built for social distance, so we have to be extra careful given the millions of people that would flock to our beaches. In his April 20th COVID-19 update sent in a video email to residents, he broke the news that the city's beaches wouldn't reopen before early June. We are not Jacksonville. If we open, it is certain that many, many thousands will flock to our miles of open beaches in South Beach and North Beach and in between. Young people on permanent spring break and many people just itching to get out. Enforcing some kind of limits on use would be a nightmare. And I'm sorry, but we will just have to do without beach access for the near future. In the coming week, there will be lessening of restrictions around parks, marinas and golf courses in Miami Beach, but not the beaches. The mayor saying the city may look into making beaches partially available for limited hours and for exercise only. So again, people are near the beach walking, biking, rollerblading, but no one's allowed to actually be on the beach. And there's no word yet on an exact date of when that reopening might happen. Glenna, Michael. Sarah, thanks. All right, now we are joined by Miami Beach Mayor Dan Gilbert by Skype. Mayor Gilbert, great to see you. Good morning. Great to see you guys. Good morning, let's Mayor. So let's, mayor uh, while, while Syrah wraps up her microphone there, <laughs> let's start off where, where she left off on the beach. The beach, part of it anyway, is in Miami Beach, and yet it's the county's jurisdiction. Uh, mayor Carlos Jimenez has some task forces he's looking to to reopen public spaces. Who actually gets to decide who opens Miami Beach, the beach? Well, well I mean, arguably the governor could demand that they be open. Uh, the, the county mayor could as well. Um, but in all of our conversations with him, he has uh, said that the local communities will have that decision. And I've spoken to many of the other coastal mayors as well, and I think we all feel uh, that uh, doing them around the same time is probably better so people don't run to other beaches. That said, um, our seven and a half miles of beaches are uh, very unique, incredibly attractive destination and prone to increase in uh, in the amount of people there almost instantaneously, which is obviously not a great thing if you're trying to be socially distant. Yeah, uh, Mr. Mayor, you said in that video message you sent your constituents and correctly that Miami Beach is a hotspot for COVID-19. As we all know, it's also the hotspot for tourism in the state of Florida. After all, it was LeBron James who said, I'm taking my talents to <laughs> South Beach. And in fact, uh, he did for a while. We're glad for that. Uh, but how are you balancing the necessity to act with medical uh, prudence and be careful? And then all your hotels, restaurateurs, clubs, uh, I mean, your economy of your city, that's where it, it really rests. You're right. And, and there's an enormous economic dislocation and stress and anxiety. But at its root, this uh, crisis is a healthcare crisis. So our decisions, although we are trying to figure out how we would open, uh, when we will open, and even how we will open, will be really guided and informed uh, by healthcare practitioners. We spend all our time talking to experts in infectious diseases and healthcare management. These are evidence-based decisions. And, and frankly, I mean, imagine if we were to open early, uh, imagine if we were to open and rush this, and then uh, this thing comes roaring back. Number one, it would probably be closed for even longer. And then 
who would believe us when we said it's time to reopen at that point? So, you know, this is, I know the pain is there, obviously. Everybody sees it. The food lines are enormous and horrible. But, you know, almost 300 people have died in our county. That's about a quarter of all the people that have died in the state. A third of all the infections are in our county. My zip code is one of the top five or six zip codes in the state. So we, we have to understand that the challenge is greater and more acute here. And we can't just, because we're ready to go back, come back unless we know we're gonna be able to manage it. And there are certain metrics that have to be in place before we do that. And, and I don't know that they're in place right now. So you have one of the economic drivers of the city, the Miami Beach Convention Center, right now is a field hospital. Yeah. Uh, an empty one, which is a, a good thing right now. Um, for anyone who doesn't watch Miami Beach Commission meetings, you have taken a lot of blowback from some of your colleagues on the commission who think it's time to do a phase reopening. I wonder if you can look back to spring break, uh, which is not that long ago, just a few, maybe a month or so ago, and some of the events that were open and the beaches were open, and, and take sort of a, is hindsight adding to your foresight on, on what to do? Of course it is. And I mean, listen, the thing we know about this virus is that it spreads silently. And that's really important to understand. In early March, uh, we didn't have a, the first case, not a death, a case in Dade County until March 11th. So the first 10 days of March when the uh, Arsh was going on, when there were NBA games, and we had throngs of kids on South Beach, uh, when we have the winter party, it was spreading, but we had no knowledge of that because we had no tests to tell us of what was going on. So we can't go early with this thing. Uh, the rush to do it would be devastating. And if, think about this, almost 300 people have died in our county, even with all of these countermeasures. We'll probably end up, unfortunately, with four to 500 deaths. Had we not had these measures in place, I think it's pretty fair uh, that the projections would have been many multiples of that. Yeah. Imagine thousands of people dying in our community because we just decided we had to go back and we just got tired of it and we wanted to go out to the beach. It yeah. just can't happen. Yeah. Uh, Mayor Gelber, in just a minute after we speak with you and take a break, we're going to speak to a couple from Hollywood who are leading a protest movement, uh, a nonviolent, a peaceful protest movement to reopen society sooner. And I bet they're going to say something like, well, let us at least walk on the beach. We don't have to put out our towels, our chairs, we don't our coolers. We just want to be able to walk on the beach or run on the beach. What do you say to that? Well, if our, uh, you know, look, our, if our city manager believes ultimately that he can control limited access at different times, perhaps just in the morning, uh, then we'll consider that. But right now, we don't think we can. And we'd like to see what happens when we open up parks and marinas and golf courses, not for team sports, but simply to give people more places to, frankly, exercise and be socially distant safely. So after that, maybe we'll look at it, but only if we can do it. Our beaches are different. They're just different than most other places. They are so attractive uh, and they're so long and they're so accessible. There are no parking lots to control access. Anybody can come and frankly, if I were uh, you know, holed up in uh, Doral or down in South Miami, I'd wanna come be on our beaches, which is great any other time, but not if we're trying to keep them you know, uh, sparse and not dangerous. So it's a, it's, a, it's a different thing for us. Reminds me of that old tourism marketing. The rules are different here. The rules <laughs> are different. Dan, Mayor Dan Gelber, thank you so much. Appreciate Thanks, your Mayor. time today. Thank you. Up next, we're gonna hear from some demonstrators who helped start the Reopen Florida movement.
welcome back. Poll show, three out of four people in Florida support continuing social distancing and stay-at-home orders until health and medical experts give the all clear. But there is, of course, growing discontent over not being able to go to work, to make money, move about freely the way that we've used to, and we have seen some protesters on those points out in South Florida. Last Sunday, in fact, we saw a caravan of cars with stay-at-home protesters. They drove from Broward down to Miami-Dade County. It was organized on Facebook by a group called Reopen South Florida. They say they have 8,000 members and they've got another caravan planned for this afternoon. The organizers are a husband and wife from Hollywood, a day school administrator and a social worker. Rachel and Yishai Cohn are with us right there today. So good to see you before your next protest. We appreciate your time today. And, and if we can start out with um, a press release that you sent about today's protest, in it you say that the data and science is now no longer justifying a shutdown. But Mr. and Mrs. Cohen, everything that we've seen from health and uh, medical experts say just the opposite, really. Yeah, I think that the current um, medical experts, at least the ones that are being voiced in the media and politicians are still working off of old information. The models that we originally saw regarding this virus in March and in uh, late February coming out of Europe and coming out of the um, United States was based on models that many scientists today are proving actually that was wrong data. That information was not accurate and the number of deaths and the fatality rate that they were expecting that they calculated all of those models on um, is showing that it's actually not true. Um, Dr. Atlas, uh, who's an esteemed um, professor at Stanford University recently released um, a quite lengthy journal article saying that those models were not true and that information is not accurate and that the death toll that we were expecting and forecasting is not coming to fruition. And in fact, we need to reassess that data and relook at those numbers for what is actually happening today in America and around the world. And if I can, I want to bring up uh, Governor DeSantis's most recent press conference where he himself shared some data he said that um, last month, 465,000 people were predicted to be in Florida hospitals across the state. He himself said that we have slightly more than 2,000 right now. So that number is very different from the predicted number. In addition, the Los Angeles County Health Department and health departments in Germany and France and other smaller and lesser known health departments yeah. throughout the country here are concluding that many, many, many more people are infected, in fact, with coronavirus making the death toll rate much lower because yeah. we have a much higher infection rate than we previously understood yeah. Mr. and Mr. the Cohen, same death Mrs. rate. Cohen, if I, excuse me, if I can kind of jump in. I think, in fact, that the uh, testing uh, that has been going on, the surveillance testing, bears out a lot of what you were saying about there are more people who have been exposed or have had some form of coronavirus. But here's the larger question. Um, sometimes you just have to make, individuals have to make sacrifices, even those guaranteed by the Constitution, for the larger good of the country. And this seems to be one of the times where we are all being asked, you know, to limit our uh, ability to go outside, to be with people uh, for a period, you know, to achieve a medical healthy condition where we can resume society as we know it. And you seem to be saying we're already at the point where we can resume. We are not experts. We are not doctors, nor are we scientists. We are parents and we care about the 
the, the, you know, the, the, the well-being and safety of our own three children and all the other children and Americans and South Floridians around us. But the data that we're reading out of some, some scientists and doctors most recently published is showing that if we actually remain sequestered in our homes and if we remain socially distanced at this current rate, a second round of outbreak will be much and far worse and surpass these numbers when we eventually do reintegrate into society. Now, many people, and this is one of our slogans that we are chanting, is really facts over fear. That this is understandably a very, very fear-driven issue. And we are all afraid. We understand the fear of families and of health professionals and of politicians from having a mass outbreak with mass casualties. So I want you to know we are, frankly, so, we are so on board with that. Facts over fear. Amen to that. Um, I want to get your perspective I, I, I on, if, if I may, because we're on TV, we have a set amount of time, and, and I really want to be able to get your opinions and perspectives on Georgia is going to be reopening tomorrow. Um, there, there is some controversy there on that decision by Georgia's governor, but there, the stores and businesses that include salons and day spas and tattoo parlors where people have to do business very close together are included in that order. I want to get your perspective on that kind of opening. Take us through what, what you believe is an appropriate opening. Well, in our Reopen South Florida group and in our larger Reopen Florida group, we, are, we actually have a lot of members that are salon workers and hairstylists, and they've been very clear that they are comfortable uh, employing the social distancing methods and working with all of the hygiene standards that need to be uh, put into place. And they feel that they can do that if given the opportunity to do that. So they can change the way their salons are set up or change the uh, protocols that they used to have in place. And we feel that it's absolutely doable. Yeah. Uh, Rachel and Yishai Cohen, it's great to speak with you. I just want to underscore one point. In your previous demonstration, it was peaceful, it was nonviolent. And that is part of your philosophy, isn't it? It is not only that it's peaceful and nonviolent, but that it's apolitical. We have people coming out across the political spectrum. Conservatives, you certainly saw a lot of Trump signs, but we have liberals, we have libertarians, we have everyone in between because this is a bipartisan, not bipartisan, this is across the spectrum issue. It's about freedom. It's about giving people their rights. And I wanted to just quickly touch on the issue of beaches, which you were speaking about before we came on. Um, there's information that was put out by... Um, the last press conference that was had nationally, where we were told that ultraviolet light, heat, and humidity kill the virus pretty much on contact. Okay, so it can't live. Its half-life is under a minute. So when we're talking about reopening beaches and saying that we need to be very conscious about doing it slowly and carefully, that, when we talk about facts over fear, that's fear-based. That's not factual. Right, and if there's anywhere that should be opened in South Florida, it's our public parks, our natural spaces, and our beaches. Because indeed, if we are talking about in you know April going into May, 85, 90 degree weather with humidity and sun in South Florida, this virus is not living upon contact to the ground or even upon contact to a you know, to, in, a, in a playground surface. All right. Um, well, we need to be we're allowed. Have to, I, I beg your pardon. We're going to have to jump okay. in here. We are out of time. We are grateful for your time. And we wish you good luck. And coming Thank in you very next, much. the Coens bring up some questions that we will take to our next guest about what will it take to get back to business safely. She has the medical perspective, and that's it.
As we have been reporting here on Local 10, planning is well underway for phasing back a reopening of business public life. Even as medical experts caution, it is way too soon to just throw open the doors. One of those is South Florida Dr. Gita Nair, assistant clinical professor of medicine at FIU, who handles calls to the state's COVID-19 hotline. Dr. Nair joins us right there from her home in Miami. Good morning to you. Good afternoon, I should say. Great to have you with us. Good afternoon, thank you for having me. Dr. Nair, I don't know if you were able to hear our last segment with some people who are running the protests to reopen. They don't buy into a lot of the statistics on the deaths and yeah. serious nature of what the nation's going through. Give us a medical perspective on reopening right now. Sure, so, you know, I did hear your guests earlier and what I would say is that since we're in South Florida, let's compare this to a hurricane. So in the middle of a hurricane, we listen to the meteorologists, right? We're, we're listening to what they say. We listen to them about when it's time to come out from sheltering in place. And this is really no different. We've got to follow the three T's, testing, tracking, and treatment before we can even make, make a step towards opening. And we don't really have any of those in a huge way nationwide right now, do we? That's right. So again, when we talk about testing, the reason testing is important is because we're looking to see who's contagious, right? How do you go back to work? How do you go to the beach? You have to know the person next to you or yourself isn't contagious. Yeah. We think about tracking. We have to know where you've been. And obviously treatment, the key being that is really going to be the holy grail that gets us all back to society. Yeah. Dr. Nair, uh, good to speak with you. It's Michael Putney. Let me ask you this week, Governor Ron DeSantis and Mayor Carlos Jimenez and I think other leaders in South Florida are going to say, all right, we're going to open public marinas. We're going to open parks under very strict conditions. No full court basketball uh, and walking, you know, away a good distance from other people. And uh, golf courses will be opening one person in a golf cart. Is that reasonable? Do you think it's time to do that? So, you know, Michael, I'm a big fan of any politician who is following the three T's. We've got to nail testing, we've got to nail tracking, and we've got to nail treatment. Without the three T's, you know, the, the municipality that, that follows the slow and steady pace is going to be the winner and the winner for the country. Dr. Nair, this week, Miami-Dade County completed this um, community surveillance antibody testing that shows that uh, roughly, the headline was a lot of people have these antibodies that we wouldn't ordinarily know about in this random sample that COVID-19 might be far more widespread, even asymptomatically. And then there are medical professionals who are really cautioning about false positives and false negatives. Can you take us through how accurate is not only antibody testing, but regular testing? Can we really place faith in a medical way in the statistics of the testing results that we're seeing? So Glenna, that's a great question, right? We're building the car like as we're driving it, right? So this is like the American Red Cross bracing for a hurricane and not having the sandbags, not having the shutters, and just not having a plan. So we are as a medical community learning this as we go. As far as the WHO and what the antibodies mean, we don't know, but what we do know is that this may not be like the chickenpox. Once you have it, it may not actually make you immune to future infections, which is even more important for us to test, track, and really focus on the treatment because that means our own body may not be able to protect us. Yeah, Dr. Nair, one of the things that we've all been learning in the last week and which you doctors have learned in the course of treating 
the patients with COVID-19 is it's a much more complex disease than had been originally thought. We see that young people 19 to 35 are suffering strokes because it causes blood clots, which then head to the lungs and heart and can kill people. I mean, this is a complex disease, isn't it? This is very complicated, Michael, and the, and the information keeps pouring in and it's very confusing. So the number one thing I'm telling folks is listen to the scientists, listen to the doctors. Science got us into this. Science will have to get us out of this. So the three T's, I think you've come up with some nice little, <laughs> some nice little headline that people can remember, testing, tracking, and treatment, and that is very valuable. And I hope you won't mind if we check in with you often and, uh, and bounce things off of you medically. Thank you so much. Dr. Nair, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. And we have some weather news today, so we'll be right back with a check of the weather. Thank you. Take a live look right now from our tower cams across South Florida, and you will not be surprised to know thunderstorms are expected. It looks that way, but for the official weather authority forecast, here's meteorologist Brandon Orr. Brandon, good afternoon. Yeah, good afternoon. It's been busy. This whole weekend has been busy. Marginal risk of severe weather continues with heavy rain, damaging wind gusts, and even some funnel clouds as some of the main threats with the storms that we'll see this afternoon, because we already saw around one this morning especially down by the Keys, and this is where we have more storms developing, just on the north side of Key West, so heads up in the Keys, you may get storms a little bit sooner than others. We already have severe thunderstorms in place. This is a severe thunderstorm warning that's outside of our area, but some of these storms, and I think this is going to be the main line that moves into northern Broward first and then continues on towards Miami-Dade. It's going to take a couple hours for it to get here, but our computer models have been hinting at that fairly well. This is by 3 o'clock. You can see some strong thunderstorms right on top of us. So it's not going to be for everybody and we don't expect widespread severe weather. It's just certain small parts of that line could become strong with damaging wind gusts as the main threat. And the front moves through tonight. Refreshing air on the way tomorrow into Tuesday. It looks really nice Monday and Tuesday and humidity back up there Wednesday and Thursday ahead of our next front. Lots of fronts on there. <laughs> our Brandon, thanks so much. And thank you for being with us. You know you can count on us 24-7 for calm and clear reporting on this unprecedented pandemic. We will get through this together. Remember, as always, stay informed, get involved. We'll see you next Sunday.